Hi, I'm Tim Mullaney, editor of Senior Housing News, and this is the first episode of Transform, a podcast about the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. With a current market value of nearly $410 billion and with demand set to surge in the coming years, the U.S. senior housing sector is attracting more interest from investors than ever before. The market is flooded with equity, but there's one common complaint from potential investors who say that they perceive a shortage of quality operating partners. But a new class of operators is stepping up, and in fact, they're helping shape the future of senior living through innovations and a fresh take on the business. And that's why we decided to focus on new operators for our first episode of Transform. In the first half of this episode, you'll hear me speak with Kai Shao, CEO of Eclipse Senior Living. Kai's a familiar voice in the industry, having previously led independent living giant Holiday Retirement. And just before forming Eclipse, he was with real estate investment trust HCP. Right out of the gate, Eclipse is a player with significant scale, having taken over management of the former Elmcroft senior living portfolio. With Eclipse, Kai has the opportunity to create an operating platform from scratch, and he's doing so by drawing from his hospitality background as well as his senior housing background. And one of the interesting things he's doing with Eclipse is creating sub-brands targeted to different price points and consumer profiles, much like hotel companies do. And then in the second part of this episode, you'll hear me speak with Matthew Johnson. He has a background in senior housing development and co-founded an operating company, Surpass Senior Living, back in March 2015. Since then, the company has built up a portfolio in the Phoenix market and is planning further expansion in other parts of the country. Johnson offered his candid perspective on what it takes to create a brand and how a new operator can succeed and grow even while facing some of today's operational headwinds, such as Uh, tight labor markets, and lots of new supply coming into certain areas. But first, here's my interview with Kai Shao. Welcome to the podcast, Kai. (laughs) Well, thank you for the invitation. (laughs) So I want to jump in by talking about sort of how Eclipse started. It took over the large Elmcroft portfolio. And I know that you'd been at HCP and had been eager to get back in operations. But had you specifically wanted to start a new operating platform versus, say, taking a leadership role at a, an existing operating company? Well, I mean, look, you know, you're right. You know, uh, HCP was my, you know, sort of first time on the ownership side. And I, I always say, you know, like when you're on the ownership side, it's sort of like playing Monopoly and, uh, you know, really miss the day-to-day operations and really being able to, like, sort of, you know, drive the direct impact. And you know, the analogy I always use is, you know, the difference between sort of pulling the string and pushing the string. I think, you know, in operations, as an operator versus the owner, you have the ability to pull the string so you can, you know, sort of see the results, you know, pretty immediately. But, you know, look, being on the ownership side is, you know, that was fun. It was interesting to do for a while. But yes, really wanted to get back into operations. And luckily, there were, you know, opportunities to sort of, you know, choose from out there. But at the end of the day, you know, a lot of the opportunities out there, you know, uh, were either with, you know, I think they came with like strings attached. You know, you've got some developer operators who probably put development first, you know, because in those scenarios, a lot of times operations is sort of a loss leader to development. And then there are, you know, other opportunities where maybe the operator was, you know, highly leveraged, you know, had leases sort of tied to it and things like that. So you really wanted to, you know, build out a platform, you know, that had a clean corporate structure. So that was really the uh, you know the goal behind you know forming Eclipse is you know one having a uh, a platform that we could sort of clean and then you know two 
work with people that you know, I love working with. And luckily I was able to, you know, pull together what I call the, you know, get the band back together with some of the folks I worked with before at holiday. Right. So I think you were getting at this already when you were talking about creating a clean corporate structure, but wondering if you can maybe elaborate on that and talk about from your time with other organizations, holiday, HCP, what have you, were there things that you told yourself, if I do find myself in a position to create an operating company from scratch, these are some things I would do differently? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, you know, I think we built a pretty cool mousetrap over at Holiday. You know, we took it and look, Bill Colson was a uh, legend in the industry and he, uh, you know, went from uh, zero to over 300 communities. So that, that was pretty amazing. You know, what we were able to do there was, like I said, sort of build out the infrastructure and the platform, make it a really scalable platform. And that's something that we wanted to you know, sort of do over again and do over and again in, in a place where, you know, again, the corporate structure was, you know, fairly clean. We didn't have you know, anything sort of tied us down, whether that be you know how the debt is you know laid on, whether that be in you know triple net leases, whether that be in you know sort of a structural components there. So yeah, really want to have something clean, or unencumbered, no debt, and you know be able to operate the you know with the operating partners the, the way we want to, and really in from a you know Rodeo or third party management uh, kind of standpoint, because I think the alignment there is you know, well the options out there. I think that's probably where the best alignment's at. And I guess we should just mention what the partnerships are. The So Eclipse is owned by yourself and some of the other executives, and then Ventas also has an ownership stake. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. They were, uh, you know, uh, we had worked with Debbie and the team at uh, Ventas uh, before when we were at Holiday and really enjoyed and appreciated, you know, their involvement. And uh, yeah, so uh, when the opportunity came around, they were uh, there as well. And yeah, uh, it, it's been a, a great partnership so far. Great. So we've already touched on your experience with Holiday and you talked about getting the band back together. So uh, let's delve into that a little bit. Eclipse is based in the old Holiday Retirement Headquarters, I believe, with a lot of former Holiday people on staff, including yourself and Shamim Wu in the leadership. So I wonder if you can talk about how Eclipse is uh, both a new operator, but it also has these deep roots in other operating companies both Holiday and then obviously Elmcroft. So has it been a challenge at all to create a kind of a distinct Eclipse culture? Can you kind of describe what the culture of Eclipse is and how you're creating it? Look, I'm not sure if, you know, the culture isn't really defined by sort of the product, whether it be IL or AL memory care. I think it's really more about sort of, you know, our, our attitude and how we approach the business. You know, we think senior housing is still an industry that's, in the infancies, you know, still in development, which means that, you know, a lot of us at Eclipse, we come from outside the industry. So we've been able to, you know, pull best practices in from either be hospitality or multifamily or retail web and things like that. So that's the kind of culture that sort of startup you know, culture that's, you know, willing to sort of try new things and, and look at different ways of doing it. That's always been the culture that we've had. And, you know, that's part of the culture that we brought uh, over to Eclipse as well. Look, we're, we're a pretty competitive bunch. Uh, I think, you know, if you talk to most people, they'll say that, uh, you know, we're a pretty sales-driven culture. We believe 100% in you know, being able to sort of, you know, achieve both mission and margin. So, yeah, that's part of our culture there as well. Got it. So let's talk a little bit about the operating model at Eclipse in greater detail. I wonder if you can basically just describe what differentiates Eclipse from the competition. And maybe in particular, wondering if you can talk about technology, because I know in some of our past conversations, that's come up as, as interesting and important, I think, what Eclipse is doing there. 
Yeah, look, I, I think the biggest point of differentiation is sort of the end result uh, or the results that we achieve. And, you know, those have been, I think, sort of well documented in terms of, you know, what we were able to do you know, before our holiday. I think, you know, you've seen or heard, you know, based on some of the earnings calls out there from our partners about the results we're beginning to achieve here at, at Eclipse as well. So, look, I, I think it's all driven by, you know, at the end of the day, we perform, we sing for our supper, and uh, we've been able to grow that way. Uh, technology you know, is a tool in order for us to sort of attain the results that we have. And we believe in you know, investing in that infrastructure. I think there are a lot of times out there, especially in today's senior housing world, where operating platforms maybe don't have the ability to sort of reinvest back into the platform and sort of grow out that infrastructure. So, you know, luckily we've been able to do that. And yeah, technology plays a big component there. You know, whether it be, you know, our ERP system, whether it be, you know, bringing in a revenue management system, whether it be, you know, taking a look at, you know, what labor systems we can put in to make labor more efficient. I think that all plays into it. I think the other, you know, thing about what differentiates us is sort of looking at, you know, how we scale and the balance between centralization and standardization. We think, you know, both are actually good. <laughs> and by you know, the ability to centralize, I think actually takes a lot of the pressure off at the community level so they can, you know, do the more important thing, which is focus on residents. I've heard some other companies talk about, you know, we want our EDs to be CEOs of our communities. And that's frankly sort of the opposite of you know, how we uh, sort of think about things. You know, we want our EDs to be the best EDs possible. You know, look, as a CEO, I can tell you there's a lot of stuff that you, you have to deal with, and I don't want to put those type of pressures onto our EDs. I just want them to focus on how do I provide the best care for our residents. That's really interesting. So I like what you're saying about centralization, some of the efficiencies there. That was another question I had because I think – Right from the start, the intention was to create kind of a family of brands under the Eclipse umbrella. So we've seen Elmcroft by Eclipse, and then recently announced Embark, which is an independent living brand. So can you talk a little bit about how you're creating distinct brands and catering maybe to different price points, but also maintaining that centralization? Is there kind of a tech backbone that runs across all these different sub-brands, policies, procedures? Uh, can you sort of talk about how you're maintaining efficiencies, but also creating that differentiation? Yeah, I mean, look, this is no different than, you know, we're, we're taking a page out of hospitality. You know, we're taking a page, you know, out of uh, retail. I mean, for instance, you know, Hilton has multiple brands, whether it be the Waldorf Astoria to the, you know, uh, the Hampton Inn. What they're able to share are back office systems. You know, they can share, you know, AR, AP, HR, and efficiencies that come with scale for all those things. So, you know, it's, you, you get the benefit of the efficiencies that way. You know, similar to in retail, you know, Banana Republic and Gap, you know, same company, but, you know, they're able to share back office efficiencies. So that's exactly what we're doing here. So a lot of the back office support systems and services that we provide, you know, they come from Portland, but they're out there for both Embark and Eclipse to uh, tap into. But yeah, I think it's important to have the separate brands out there because there are customers out there that are looking for different things. Not all residents are created the same. And uh, each has their own unique, you know, sort of uh, desires and and need. And, you know, it's our job to sort of match up what they're looking for to the best brand out there. So on that note, can you describe maybe Embark specifically, since that's, I think, the more recently introduced brand? Who are you kind of serving there? I think it's 
been described as a more middle market independent living brand. So if that's correct, I'm wondering if you can get into a little bit of how you're defining middle market and how you're able to serve that demographic, because I think that's something that senior living has been kind of trying to crack the code on with some providers having more success and, and some having more of a challenge. Right. I mean, look, the, you know, this is regards to sort of the value proposition and, you know, sort of the cost to services equation and balancing those two. You know, when we say middle market, you know, we're look, there are certainly senior housing options out there where they provide, you know, five star service, but you end up paying for that five star service. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Again, you're speaking to that particular market who you know, is willing to pay for that and has a certain set of expectations. You now, for us, the Embark brand targets that middle market. So, you know, we may not have, you know, housekeepers wearing white gloves and things like that, but you know, we do provide, you know, we clean rooms, we turn rooms, and it's a certain level of service that ties into that value proposition. Again, you know, looking at hospitality, it's a difference between the Hampton Inn and the Waldorf Astoria. And uh, we think that, you know, there is an opportunity out there to you know, speak to the folks who, you know, who are satisfied with that value proposition of being at a Hampton Inn, especially when we take a look at the landscape today, I think everyone you know, realizes, you know, in America, you know, folks are living longer, saving a little bit less, and that you know produces a certain conundrum. So, you know, our hope is that we can, uh, you know, solve for that population that uh, you know maybe is not being served today. Great. Uh, I wonder if you can talk about the extent to which you think of Eclipse as specializing in turnarounds, because I think you took over the Omcroft portfolio that had some upside opportunity at that time that you started managing it. And then I believe that Embark is coming from a portfolio of former Brookdale properties. So are, are you thinking about coming and turning these properties around, or is that not quite the way that you're approaching it? Look, I, I don't think we ever you know, sat out at the beginning of the day when we formed Eclipse and said, you know, we're, we're going to be the turnaround company. I think it's more of a reflection of the people who are calling us and what they're looking for. Now, if I were to you know, break down, you know, let's say the last 10 phone calls you know, I got from folks, probably three of the 10 are folks who are owners who are you know, looking for a different result. You've got another three out of 10 who are developers who are trying to get their project greenlit, but you know, they can't because of finance and finance is telling them, well, you need a more experienced operator, you know, at the helm. And then another three out of 10 are, you know, developers who have already have a project underway, but they're not sort of hitting their marks. So they're looking to, you know, make a change there. So, and by the way, the, the final one out of 10 are, you know, folks from like, you know, capital from, you know, from China or something who saw my name, decided to give me a call. But um, the, he, there, there was no intention, you know, on our side to say, hey, look, we're going to be the turnaround company. I think it's just a you know, matter of folks knowing our track record and then, uh, you know, giving us a call with those challenges. You know, and that said, I think, you know, we, we live today in a challenged senior housing environment. You know, with uh, you know, with new supply, with labor out there, everyone's you know sort of feeling the pinch. So I think you know people are looking for operators who are well uh, you know well structured, who have the ability to scale, who have the infrastructure, and then uh, who have the track record to you know deliver results that they're looking for. Great. So what does the future hold for Eclipse if you had to predict, given that you are getting all of this kind of variety of inbound calls? Are you looking at adding new sub-brands, new geographies, doing some ground-up development? Can you sort of talk about what you anticipate the portfolio will look like down the road? 
Look, I, you know, we will continue to grow, and I think there are other pockets of seniors who you know aren't being addressed yet. Like I said before, you know, they're not all residents, and not all seniors are you know are the same, and everyone's looking for uh, you know for something that speaks to them. I was sitting on a panel you know a while back ago where they were talking about why hasn't senior housing penetration increased that much over the years, and you know most of the people on the panel were developers, and they all just said, well. I don't think, you know, we've marketed ourselves very well that people know the benefits of senior housing. You know, my perspective was a little bit different. I just don't think that, you know, we've built something yet that the other 88% are looking for. So, you know, our goal is to start tapping in and start thinking of ways to go after that unspoken 88% out there. Given that all those headwinds that you kind of ticked off a little while ago from labor markets, oversupply, et cetera, wondering if you would say that now is a good time to start an operating company. (laughs) You know, look, I think, again, if you have the right resources in terms of talent, the right resources in terms of capital, I think it's a great time to build a uh, build out a platform. Again, I think there are folks out there who are you know, looking for a different result, and uh, you know they are looking. So if you can fill that void, yes. Uh, if you talk to capital out there, look, I think the number of capital who's interested in senior housing has grown exponentially over the last few years. But you know when you take a poll of that capital, they will tell you that there aren't that very many good operators out there. So, you know, what's the demand? The demand is for some good operators. So, uh, you know, if you can, you know, build out a, a good operating platform that gets results, yeah, I think it's a great time to, uh, to do a startup. Great. Maybe you sort of answered this already, but wondering if you would add on to that with any particular advice you would give to an entrepreneur who's considering starting a new senior living provider today. I think number one is, you know, choose your partners well. You know, make sure that you're working with partners that, you know, smart capital, because there's a lot of probably, you know, new capital out there that maybe doesn't, you know, understand the ebbs and flows of senior housing very well yet. You know, choose folks that, uh, you know, align in terms of uh, what, you know, their interests are. Make sure that, you know, you're clear on what their goals and objectives are. As I said, there's a lot of capital out there. So, you know, be selective. I think it is a, you know, was it seller's market? <laughs> so, you know, you actually have the ability to choose who you want to work with. Right. And then to close, wondering if you can talk about maybe the biggest challenge you face in getting Eclipse up and running. And then if you can talk about maybe one of your proudest accomplishments so far, and if you can preview any of the kind of innovations that you hinted at in terms of serving the unserved 88%. Of course, I'm curious to hear that too. Yeah, look, I think the you know the biggest challenge is again sort of you know, look. I, I wish I brought on an investments person sooner than later because I, frankly I've been surprised by the amount of phone calls and inquiries we've you know, received, and you know it's hard to sort of sift through all that. So being able to you know like I said before, sort of uh, you know pick and choose wisely is probably the uh, you know one of the you know it's it's a I guess high class problem to have, but you know that that's been a challenge. One of the things I'm proudest about is just from a people standpoint, how the folks, you know, in Eclipse have, you know, sort of, you know, risen to the challenge. I mean, look, we are a startup. <laughs> we're, you know, just over a year old and we're, you know, over a hundred communities now. We are, you know, we've taken on communities that were, you know, with other operators. So there's been some transition there and, you know, with transition, you know, always comes some drama and, you know, everyone's been patient and, you know, uh, you know worked through all the transition noise out there while still providing and getting results. That's something to be pretty proud of. 
And then, you know, finally, I think you know, our thesis for a lot of these transitions are, look, you know, let, let's not make a lot of people changes. Let's just give people some different, you know, direction and some better tools to work with. And, you know, from there we can get better results. And so far we have. So, um, yeah, again, when it comes to the people, I think that's, uh, you know, what I'm most proud of so far. Great. Well, this was a really interesting conversation as always. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks for the invite. I really would like to start by hearing the story behind Surpass Senior Living. The company was founded in March 2015. Do I have that date right? Correct. Great. Can you describe what you'd been doing previously and why you decided to start the company at that point? Sure. So... I started McFarland Group in 2008, and McFarland was a developer and owner of assisted living and memory care. I got into the senior living space in 2001 through a company that developed, owned, and operated entry fee continuing care retirement communities and then broke off to start McFarland Group. So from 2008 to present, McFarland's been a developer and owner of primarily assisted living and memory care properties initially just in Texas, but now in multiple states. Through that period of time, we utilized third-party operators to manage our properties. We really felt like we were getting junior varsity team or not the oversight and commitment that we were looking for. And it was based on those experiences that we started surpassing your living to manage our own properties. So we don't manage for a fee for anyone else. All of the properties that we manage, we have some kind of financial interest in the properties. And that's been our business model up to to date since we started Surpass in 2015. Great. So I believe it was then in August 2016, you announced a pipeline of five assisted living and or memory care properties. I think it was about $80 million worth of development to occur in and around Phoenix. Can you sort of talk through what it took to put together that pipeline of projects and just how you went about selecting those sites and putting the pieces together for to kind of get the company off the ground in that way? Sure. So all of those properties have been capitalized. They are all completed with construction and all in various stages of lease-up. We've added another property to the mix in Phoenix. So we do have five properties there. The fifth property is a 202-unit independent living community. So we've moved up the continuum a little bit from assisted living and memory care up to active adult. And we have two active adult properties under construction, one there in the Phoenix market, and it's about a $45 million property. Another one in Raleigh, North Carolina, that's 187 units of active adult. So when we entered that market, Phoenix, with those four properties that became five, it was based on our market research that we do internally. We have since leveraged a firm called Vision LTC for our market research, which has really streamlined and accelerated our ability to look at a wide number of market areas, utilizing NIC data and up-to-date demographics based on our own analysis that they've customized for us. So it really has allowed us to streamline and accelerate our market analysis process, not only for developments, but acquisitions that we're looking at. On the development side, we've really slowed down our development activity a little bit and have started to focus a little bit more on acquisitions in the current market. 
In terms of that switch to focusing on acquisitions, is that because you're seeing more opportunity there, maybe distressed properties, things that haven't fared well with all the new supply coming in? Yes, a couple things. Number one, we certainly follow where our capital partners want to go. We have institutions and family office that invest with us. And so part of our strategy is predicated on where they see the opportunities and where they want to invest their capital. But where we see the opportunities trending is certainly towards acquisition, where we can buy for less than what we can build for right now. In the last 10 years, we've seen construction costs continue to rise, and it feels like they're at the highest point today than they've been since we started the company in 2008. So we feel like it's still a good time to build in selective markets where we can create some barriers to entry. But we are more focused on acquisition of existing properties where we can get them at a substantial discount. We are also in the process of creating a platform to buy non-performing loans within senior living. And we have our first non-performing loan under contract that may close in the next 30 to 45 days. So essentially, we're buying the loan from the bank and we have a clear pathway to an ownership position. So our basis in the properties is even less than the loan amount. And that's typically for newer properties that we're focused on there. And geography for those are kind of coast to coast. But because of the significant amount of development, our crystal ball of senior living over the near term, two to four years, is that there will be absorption challenges. And a lot of smaller properties that were capitalized with non-institutional money or friends and family, and they don't have the ability to go back and raise additional capital, that we see those properties running into challenges and ultimately be being turned over to special servicing at banks. So we are certainly focusing part of our new business development time on banks and acquiring non-performing loans as well as value-add acquisitions. Right. So I guess going back to that pipeline of projects that you've been opening, can you sort of talk about what that, how that process went in bringing those projects out of the ground in Phoenix? Did it go smoothly? Was it bumpier than you would have hoped? And how has LeaseUp gone? Have you encountered any supply, you know, unexpected supply pressure in, in those markets? So the initial LeaseUp went well with just the added time component to leasing up properties and new properties opening up in some of those markets it started to slow our lease up and absorption of those properties. But we're nearing the point of stabilization on at least three of our four properties in the Phoenix market. And we'll probably look to refinance or recapitalize those in the upcoming year. We have found in Arizona, the labor market to be a little bit better and more friendly than Texas and other markets, predominantly because caregivers in Arizona have to be certified. So they, by nature of that certification, have received some formal training and a certificate prior to even being accepting a position with us. So we found that that's been beneficial. However, with all the new properties, I'd say our biggest challenge and stumbling block has been labor and finding, keeping, and maintaining resident care partners and med techs as our properties as we continue to grow census. So that's been our biggest challenge in those markets. And then certainly as we opened three properties in Phoenix, really four properties in a period of 12 months, it was just a lot to handle and onboard. Every time you open a building, it's like starting a new business, hiring all department heads, all line staff, creating a culture. So it's just a lot of work. And I would say that that's been a stumbling block in just opening four properties and in such a 
condensed period of time in the same market. Yeah, I can imagine that. Can Why did you open so many? Did you just want to really control the market? Was it the opportunity was there and you wanted to jump at it at that time? Or did you underestimate how <laughs> much work was going to go into that? Probably all the above. Our goal was to develop a property every quarter in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And we, for, for the most part, accomplished that. However, one property is finished a month early. Another one finishes two months late. So you have this wave of properties kind of opening almost at the same time. And so that became the biggest challenge for us is just hiring several hundred people in the Phoenix market all at the same time. And then certainly we're having to rehire as people leave or we terminate and rehire. So we've hired probably three to 400 people in the Phoenix market in terms of new hires and rehires over the last 24 months. And it's just a lot for HR to manage all at once. Well, let's talk about the operating model a little bit. I liked what you said earlier about feeling like in the past, you might have been working with the JV management team and you wanted to up the game by starting Surpass. So can you talk about what differentiates Surpass from some of those JV squad management types that you worked with in the past and maybe differentiate Surpass from some of the other competition that's in the marketplace? Sure. In regards to differentiating surpass from others. A lot of management companies own properties, they lease properties, and they manage for a fee. And we fell in, before we started surpass, we fell in the category of management for a fee. And that's why we felt like we weren't getting as much focus and attention as we as we wanted. And most of the management companies that we were working with and many in the industry are larger companies, 30, 40 properties, because you can, with scale, comes cost savings and efficiencies and scale and number of properties under management. And so one of our differentiators, and I'd say our strength, is that we only manage properties that we have an ownership interest in. So that aligns us with ownership, with our equity partners, and operations. And it allows us to make decisions very quickly and pivot and try new things. And so I say that's right now our biggest strength or differentiator from the the other operators that were small we execute quickly and we can we can pivot and try new things and so i think that's been a strength of ours great uh, and you also mentioned the challenge of creating a culture how would you describe the culture of surpass and, and how have you gone about creating that so we are really focused going into 2019 and and also in 2018 and creating a culture of high-performance teamwork. We're leveraging books, research, and consulting from Patrick Lencioni and the Table Group and his multiple books about high-performance teamwork. And so we're really focused on creating a culture of authenticity, openness, trust, where our team members can really self-police one another and allows for really open dialogue and good communication. We found that that's been, by enhancing the openness and the dialogue of team members, it's allowing us to have better tenure of team members where they really feel like they're valued, they're listened to, and that they can have their have an open dialogue with other team members that they work with. So that is part of our focus for 2018 and enhancing that culture and really creating a team environment of high-performance teamwork. Great. 
You mentioned your kind of nimbleness and ability to try new things quickly as a strength. Can you give any examples and also maybe maybe related to that, maybe talk about your approach to technology, which I think is a big focus for operators across the board, kind of deciding what systems to put into place, whether it's back office or, or resident facing? Sure. So on the ability to pivot and and being small, your first question we are not shy about trying new things. And some of the new ideas that we have tried and are doing are creating our own independent sales consultant program, which kind of competes with a place for mom and other third-party referral agencies, but trying to create an army of salespeople, just like Mary Kay Cosmetics or Roden and Fields. In addition to leveraging access to Medicare data and taking a different approach to targeting third-party referrals in the markets that we serve. So those are just some examples of some things that we're trying and doing a little bit differently. On the technology side, we are trying to refine how we're using technology. A lot of the larger firms have built systems internally for managing nurse call, for managing financials, and their care platforms. We're currently using multiple platforms for managing financials, our CRM, and also our care platform. So we're in the process of really trying to refine and streamline how we're utilizing the technology to best benefit us and provide the best-in-class care to our residents. Some of our focus has been on nurse call response times, and we've been able to get nurse call response times at most of our buildings to under three minutes. And we've had to modify how we're using technology within our buildings to create a platform where we're getting accurate response alerts and being able to respond and communicate amongst all of our team members in a fast time frame. Great. And then just from an external marketing standpoint, how have you gone about kind of building the brand? I imagine there's so many decisions to make from the logo to the name of the company to the sort of go-to-market strategy, sales, etc. So... As when we named Surpass Senior Living, it was really based on the premise that we wanted to surpass expectations of our residents, families we serve, our team members and employees, and also our investors. Mm-hmm. So we did engage a third party called Murdoch Marketing to help build the brand for us and put together collateral materials. But the name was based on wanting to do things a little bit differently as we've talked about and defining ourselves a little bit differently from some of the bigger operators in the industry and to surpass expectations. How would you sort of describe the demographic of the resident that you're trying to serve? Is it kind of high-end, uh, more middle market? Is it, does it vary by location? Our, our niche is really to be a Marriott building at a Hampton and Price, where we see the market is interest rates increasing and families stressed about mom or dad outliving their assets because of better advanced diagnostics, better prescriptions and medicine and better care, that people are living healthier longer. So we see in an affordability pyramid, our target is really the middle fat part of the pyramid. And again, we've defined that as a Marriott building at a Hampton and price point, just because there are more people that can afford a lower price point. And so we try and price ourselves about two to $400 less than a majority of the competitors in any market we serve. And we found that that's 
for us been a good market to serve and it's been well received not only by our investors but also by the families that select us great so We've heard that there's obviously a lot of investor interest in senior housing. And I think from new sources, whether it's foreign capital, whether it's you know multifamily investors that are now taking an interest in senior housing. So it seems like there's a lot of capital available. But also there's frustration in, among the investor community that there aren't more quality operators out there. So wondering what you make of this. Do you think there are too few solid operators? And are you hearing from investors who are looking for a management company? I know that you said that you are sort of committed to this model of, of owner-operator. I think operations is the most challenging piece of our business. And I think that's something that can certainly get overlooked. You know, the old adage is realist or location, location, location. And it's been said in senior living, it's operations, operations, operations. And mm -hmm. that is certainly true. It takes a lot of dedicated focus to not only hiring the right people, but providing a lot of ongoing support and training. And we're really in the people business. We have some very nice, new, shiny buildings. But at the end of the day, we're a staffing company that employs a lot of people to provide care programs and food to residents on a daily basis. So our biggest opportunity as an industry is, I believe, to focus on training and high-performance teamwork within the walls of our communities with our teams. And for anyone entering the space, I would say that that's where I think you can invest the most significant time and effort is hiring the right team members first and providing a lot of ongoing training and oversight of those team members. I would agree that there's there's the need for a stronger operations, but I think that's why you'll see operators grow. And for us, we're putting specific focus on really refining and perfecting our operations. And then we know that we'll be able to scale accordingly once we have all of our quote unquote kinks worked out, because I would agree that investors want to find solid operators. And then once you find an operator, really grow with them. So that's part of our focus going to 2019 as well, is just refining our model and then being prepared to scale because we think there's going to be a lot of opportunities for us to grow in 2019 and beyond. Right. So knowing what you know about what it takes to start uh, an operating company and knowing what you know about the senior housing landscape today, would you say now is a good good time to start an operating company? It seems like there are a lot of headwinds from tight labor markets to some oversupply out there. But then also everyone sees the demographics and, and the boomers coming down the pike and wants to maybe have the pieces in place. Yes, I would say that it's probably not the most opportune time. But for someone that is starting it, as long as they have solid experience in the industry and have existing relationships, I think that's the best way to launch and start a new senior living operations company, but would agree with the significant headwinds over the next maybe 18 to 36 months with a lot of new construction, with the labor markets being pretty tight and unemployment at, at significantly low levels is certainly not without challenges in starting a new management company where you're required to hire not only employees at the corporate level, but employ, hire, oversee, and direct a lot more employees and team members at the community level. Mm -hmm. 
Great. So I guess lastly, I'm just curious to learn a little bit more about plans going forward for Surpass and McFarlane. Are you, I guess one one thing that came up earlier that maybe I'd like to follow up on is the move into active adult um, as a segment. We've seen that a couple other groups also start to target active adult. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit on what you see as the opportunity there? Sure. So we're seeing some headwinds on assisted living and memory care just because of the amount of new construction and absorption challenges. A lot of groups entering this space, whether they're medical office, hospital, or multifamily developers, seem to be targeting the assisted living and memory care market. And as we look at our resident population, it's predominantly an 84 to 86-year-old widowed female, and the leading age of the baby boomers were born in 1946, which means they are just now turned 73 years old. So they still have quite a ways before they enter assisted living and memory care. So that's been the reason why we're moving up and looking at more active adult developments is because the baby boom population will be moving through the active adult market before it gets to assisted living and memory care. And because of the significant amount of development of assisted living and memory care. So that's what's really forced us to move up the continuum and really continue to leverage our development expertise but in a different way, in a different model. And we are continuing that Marriott building at Hampton and Price Point on the active adult side as well. And so pricing ourselves significantly below traditional independent living competitors. And I guess I'm curious in terms of that, having that really nice physical plant, but then offering a lower price point. You know, one thing when we talk to people about how to bake in more affordability into a senior housing model, they almost always talk about how important it is to kind of value engineer on the construction side, construction design side. So maybe can you briefly talk about how you manage that to to create the Marriott building, but then uh, support those lower rents? Sure. So it comes starts with number one, not over designing the building. We went and studied some of our first properties we built and looked at what areas of the community were not being utilized, what parts of the community could we combine together. So we really, over the last 10 years, have refined our footprint first and not over-designing and over-building the community. That would be number one. And then number two, we haven't worked with architects and contractors who you've seen their names in magazines. These are smaller design firms. Really, we've worked with one design firm that's designed all of our buildings, and they're a smaller design firm. They are cost-conscious, so they don't over-design. It feels like when we start value engineering, you only get 60 to 70 cents on the dollar for every everything you take out. So we start by designing affordably and conservatively, and then we can always add things in during the course of construction or prior to financing. So not over-designing and working with smaller, growing firms like ourselves that have solid experience, good people, and can follow the formula and can execute on on the strategy. And so that's that's allowed us to keep our pricing at a level that's about 20 to 30% less per square foot or cost per door than our competitors. Additionally, we've done a lot of our assisted living and memory care properties have been single story, which has allowed us to keep to wood frame construction versus metal stud 
and eliminate elevators and other things that go along with multi-story construction. So that's also uh, helped benefit us in keeping construction costs a little bit lower. Interesting. So then just looking ahead, wondering about your kind of cadence for growth and what you would imagine the portfolio would look like in, I don't know, pick your time horizon, three years, five years in terms of how large you anticipate the company being and maybe what the mix is if you can forecast of, you know, AL, memory care, active adult. Yeah. So right now we have 10 properties, combination of assisted living with combination memory care and, and the active adult. With the properties that we have under contract or letter of intent, we're growing in new states as well as with new service lines, meaning one of the properties we have under contract is a standalone memory care. And so we're, we certainly don't want to extend ourselves to too far in the United States and have one property in Florida and another one in Washington. So we want to be conscious about how we're growing and grow smart. We like the Sunbelt states being located and headquartered in Dallas allows us to get to most of the Sunbelt states in a pretty quick and reasonable time frame to be able to manage our properties closely. As far as continued growth, it will include development, but probably a lot more acquisition over the near term than development. And that acquisition would be a combination of value add acquisition, some stabilized acquisition, and then acquisition of non-performing loans from banks. All right. Well, we are looking forward to keeping tabs on how the growth of Surpass goes over the next few years. And I think uh, you've got an interesting model. So thanks for sharing some details today with us. Tim, thank you. I appreciate it. 